Take your Bible. Put a marker around Matthew 26 or 27 if you have one. Those are the two chapters we will be using the most tonight, Matthew 26 and 27. As you turn there, let me take a moment to say how much I appreciate this opportunity. It's wonderful privilege to be back here at College View, to be with you once more. It's been, I didn't look back to see how long it had been. It, I just know it's been long enough to forget how I did the last time, so they had me back one more time. But uh, it is good to be here. Janet and I are delighted to be here. Enjoyed a good meal with Jacob and Nikki. And, you know, we enough time has passed that we've about forgiven Jacob for stealing Nikki away. She used to worship with us in Athens at, when I was with the Pepper Road group. And we've kind of gotten over that now after all these years. But, uh, no, it's great to be with them again, to be with all of you, to do what I love to do, and that's to open up the Word of God and study together. And we're going to be talking tonight about a most important subject, the most serious subject. And that's why what I'm about to say may throw you a little bit as you, as it seems like I'm going in a very strange direction. But I want you to think for just a moment about college football, which for a lot of people in this part of the world, that's not hard to get them to do, to think about college football. In fact, sometimes on Sunday morning, I have trouble getting people to quit thinking about college football for a little while, you know. But think about it for just a second. What makes a great coach in college football? I mean, recruiting is very important. A good coach is a teacher. I mean, you've got to game plan. You've got to teach kids how to tackle, how to pass, how to do all these things. But the one thing I want you to just think for a moment, and this often overlooked, I think, is motivation. You've got to be a motivator. It's really, and I don't mean you've got to be able to make those Newt Rockney win one for the Gipper speeches before they run out onto the field. I mean, if you're not pumped and excited when there's 110,000 people in the stands, when the, the cameras are on and you're going to be on national television, then you've got a problem. But it's not easy to get in that weight room in February. There are no cameras around. There's nobody cheering for you. And you're working out through February and March and on through the spring. And then it comes summer camp. And I don't care who you root for. Whether you're talking Knoxville or Tuscaloosa or Auburn or Nashville or Gainesville or wherever. It is hot in August when you're out there doing two-a-days. It takes a special kind of coach to push kids to motivate them to give it their best during those times. Or maybe sometimes even during a game. When things aren't going your way, you get a few bad calls. You get a few bad breaks. An, a key injury to a, one of your players. And you've got to push your kids. Don't give up. Don't quit. Well, when it comes to being a preacher, my primary work, I consider it to be teaching to taking the Word of God and showing people, these are God's instructions for you. This is what God wants you to do. This is how you become a child of His. This is how you live as His child. But the reality is, sometimes it's hot. You know, it's tough. Breaks don't, they don't go our way in life. Sometimes as a Christian, 
It's hard to keep going sometimes. We have to not just teach people this is what God wants. You have to motivate them to do it, to become a Christian. You have to motivate people. You've got to push them to keep going when it's tough. How do we do that? Well, I believe there are various motivations revealed in Scripture. There are some wonderful promises of reward. And I believe we ought to use those. There are some horrible threats of punishment. Depictions of God's wrath. Those ought to be used. I believe the life of a Christian that we can show is in many ways a better life. That you avoid, 1 Peter 3, he who would love life and see good days. And he talks, says, be a Christian. But tonight we're going to talk about the cross. And I believe, at least for me, this is the most powerful of all the motivations that I can give someone. If they will not be moved by the cross to obey the gospel, if they will not be moved by the cross to be faithful, it's going to be hard to move them. And I believe in many ways, every other motivation goes back to the cross. It goes back to it. When we look at the cross, who are we talking about? Who was this that was put on trial before the Jews, then before the Romans, even sent over for a little while to Herod, then eventually beaten, taken outside Jerusalem, and nailed to a cross at Golgotha? Who was this? Well, I'll give you a summary of it. Oh, go the right way here. A perfectly innocent man who had done nothing wrong. Look there at Matthew 27, verse 23. The very man Pilate, the Roman governor, the one who will give the order to crucify him, asked, What then shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said to him, Let him be crucified. Then the governor said, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, saying, Let him be crucified. I want you to begin with an appreciation for the fact that the one we're going to look at on the cross didn't deserve to be on the cross. The very man who would order him put there would say that. But I want you to understand something. Jesus is not just legally innocent. I mean, I can stand before you in all honesty and say to you, I've never done anything for which the state of Tennessee, state of Alabama, Florida, wherever I've lived in various states, none of those states have I ever committed a capital crime. For them to want to put me to death would go against everything, everything injustice speaks of. But you can't say of me, I can't say of myself what was said of Jesus. In Hebrews, the fourth chapter, in verse 4, as he's talking about Jesus being a sympathetic high priest, it said he was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. First Peter 2, 22 says that he had committed no sin, 
nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. If you took me before a judge today to accuse me of a capital crime, I could plead not guilty. You put me before the great God of heaven and earth. Have you ever violated my law in any way? I can't plead not guilty. But the one we're looking at could. He was innocent of everything. But he wasn't just innocent. He was good. And there's a difference, I think, to say, well, I've never committed a crime. Well, that's one thing. Jesus was good. I love the description, Acts 10, 38. He went about doing good. You're just going to start thinking about his life. How many times it would say, having compassion. He had compassion on the sick, on the poor, the demon-possessed. He had time for the little children that would be brought to him. He had concern for people. He helped people. He was good. Jesus was innocent. He was good. But far more than that, He was the Son of God. In John, the first chapter, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. The Word. Verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We're talking about Jesus. He was with God. He was God. He's Creator. When we look at the cross tonight, we are seeing the creature rise up to kill the Creator. The very One who gave life to all mankind. Who brought everything into existence. Don't lose sight of who we're talking about. As we look at Jesus, you just remember, never did anything wrong. In fact, He did all things good. And He was our Creator. When Jesus was on earth, if they had been looking as they should have, they would have seen what John said, we beheld His glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Turn back with me to Matthew 26. And I want us to follow Jesus. As He goes from Gethsemane, He was just outside the city of Jerusalem, on the Mount of Olives, a place called Gethsemane. A garden where that week during the... You know, as He was there in Jerusalem, He would go to pray at night, to be with His disciples. With Matthew, the 26th chapter, we begin... Jesus has been praying. And it says in verse 47, While he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus 
and took him. A lot of you from childhood have known the little song about the twelve apostles. And you come to Judas, and by him was the Lord betrayed. This is an apostle. This is a friend. This is one, John 13, 18, he would reference the Psalm 41. The one who's eaten bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. One of my companions, and I will say to you, if you've ever had a friend turn against you, desert you, hurt you, that's painful. It, it, it's not a pleasant thing. That's what's happening to Jesus that night. And his other friends deserted him. Verse 56, Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. They came to arrest him. And they all forsook him. Now they had all said that night, We'll never deny you. We'll be there for you. They all run away. Now what appears to happen is that Peter and John regroup. And they follow him to the house of the high priest. And John has some pull. He gets them in. You don't ever see one of them stand up for him. And then look again at verse 69. And I understand, I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. You know the story of Peter's denial. But I just want you to think again about this. The innocent and good Son of God is being denied by one of his closest friends. You know, there was the twelve. But within the twelve, there were the three. Peter, James, and John, they were inner circle. Now, Peter sat outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him saying, You also were with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are saying. And when he had gone out to the gateway... Another girl saw him and said to those who were there, This fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. But again he denied with an oath, I do not know the man. And a little later those who stood by came up and said to Peter, Surely you also are one of them, for your speech betrays you. Then he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Luke makes mention of something here. It says that Jesus turned and looked at him. I don't know what that look was. Was it pain? Disappointment? Was it, I told you so? What was it? I don't know. But then Peter went out and wept bitterly. But his friends had failed him. Then... Look at how they treated Jesus. Verse 55. In that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. You, you've seen the news. Somebody's arrested, and they're hiding their face from the camera. They're ashamed. They don't want to be seen. It's a disgrace. And Jesus said, you're treating me like a robber? I'm some dangerous person? 
This is the guy who's gone about, he's healed the sick. When people brought little children to him to bless, he took them in his arms and he prayed for them. And he, he scolded the disciples for wanting to drive the children away. And he said, I'm out in the open. I've got nothing to hide. And you treat me like a criminal. Oh, they were just beginning. Look at Matthew 26 and verse 67. And I would note that Mark says they blindfolded him. They blindfolded him. Then they spat in his face and beat him. And others struck him with the palms of their hands saying, Prophesy to us, Christ. Who is the one who struck you? They spat in his face. I'm going to go out on a limb here and just assume that some of you have watched a few football games in your life. I mean, it's, it's amazing to me. One thing about football is you've got these incredibly strong fellows. They're incredibly fast. The laws of physics just, you start thinking about the mass and the speed and all of that and the collisions, violent. It's a wonder anybody survives. But there, two guys will hit each other, top speed, lay one another out, and then they'll get up and pat the other one on the back and say, good hit. But you ever been watching a game where somebody spat on another player? And I mean, then they go crazy. And this fight breaks out and you have to separate. I mean, some sidelines may come out. They're out there trying to take one another's heads off. And everybody's okay with that. But you spit on somebody, and that's the ultimate insult. They have blindfolded Jesus. They spit on Him. They slap Him and say, You're the Christ. Prophesy which one was that. Who was doing this to Jesus? People He had given life to. He is their Creator. It would be in some ways comparable to adult children blindfolding a parent and spitting on a parent. I know it's not exactly the same, but this is the one who gave them life. This is their Creator they're doing this to. And then... This innocent son of God, they said, we want you to turn a murderer loose among us. And they had this custom. At the Passover, the governor would release a prisoner. And it would appear that Pilate thought, okay, I'm going to give him a choice of Barabbas. Barabbas committed murder in a rebellion against the government. And their whole accusation is, well, he's not loyal to Caesar. Now, that wasn't why they wanted him killed. That's what they're telling Caesar. I mean, telling Pilate. So I'm going to give them a choice between this man that's gone about feeding 5,000, working miracles, teaching in the temple, and a man who actually did rebel against the government, who killed people in this. And what do they want? Well, you know what they want. Matthew 27 and verse 15 now, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas 
or Jesus who is called Christ. Verse 21. The governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, What then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said to him, Let him be crucified. Then the governor said, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, saying, Let him be crucified. Just wrap your head around this. That here he is, innocent. He is good. And, and to some degree, maybe I can't fault them for not understanding he was the Son of God. But they knew of his innocence. Many of them had witnessed his goodness. But they said, turn the murderer free and kill him. Pilate gave in to them. And it says in verse 26, Then he released Barabbas to them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. What does it mean to scourge somebody? I was on the receiving end of a few disciplinary acts by my father that I thought were pretty firm. Let's just put it this way. I would tell other people I was beaten. You know, I, oh, he, oh, he just gave me a beating. You know, he gave me a pretty good whipping. He never scourged me. You know, he never a scourge. I mean, we, we've just reached a point where if somebody delivers good, solid punishment, we just think that's horrible. The International Bible Encyclopedia, International Standard Bible Encyclopedia says, the scourge was a Roman implement for severe bodily punishment. It consisted of a handle to which several cords or leather thongs were affixed, which were weighted with jagged pieces of bone or metal to make the blow more painful or effective. The victim was tied to a post, and some references will say they suspended them in the air. The idea was they stretched the back muscles out. And it said, in the tense position of the body, the effect can easily be imagined. Here's something. You don't really want to imagine it. You don't want to really think in too much detail about what these leather thongs with bone and metal attached to it across that body stretched tight. It would rip the skin. It would often expose internal organs. It is said by historians, the victims usually fainted. And sometimes they died before they were even taken out to be executed. It was a most brutal type of beating. That's what happened to Jesus. And then, and it's just almost unimaginable. They weren't finished with him. They had some more humiliation to inflict upon him. Verse 27, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away 
to be crucified. When you read through those verses, I think you probably see some physical pain involved. The back bloodied by the scourging, and his clothes put back on him, then the clothes taken back off, and you know how cloth in an open wound, it'll begin to clot, then you pull and it can inflict more pain, starts the bleeding again. The crown of thorns would certainly have caused some pain. But the key, I think, just what they're doing to him mentally, the cruelty of taking this one who came into this world to be king, and yet they treat him like a mock king. They found an old robe. His crown is a, you know, thorns. They've got for a scepter, not gold, but a reed. And they mock him. And then they spit on him again. And they strike him again. And then he takes his cross. And he goes out to Calvary. Some speak of Jesus carrying the cross. Other places it talked about how Simon bore his cross after him. It may well be that he was just unable to finish the journey. But he arrived out at Calvary, Golgotha, the place of the skull. And in verse 35, it simply says, Then they crucified him. New Testament writers don't give us much detail. They didn't have to. Executions today are so different than what they were in the first century. One, they're rare today. There's an awful lot of murder that happens in our society, but very few ever pay the ultimate price. And only then after years, but when it happens, it'll be inside a prison with just a very, very few witnesses. I've never witnessed a capital punishment, you know, other than reenactments on television, movies or television, but not for real. I've never seen it. People then had seen it. Crucifixions were spectator sports. They would execute somebody beside the road where it was visible to all. And it would attract the crowd. When Paul would say of Jesus that he was obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross, in Philippians 2.8, I suspect that that was just the kind of thing that would create a little bit of a shudder, a little reaction, because they knew what kind of death that was. In fact, a Roman citizen, even if he committed a capital crime, didn't have to experience crucifixion. It, they were exempted from that. It was cruel. I want us to think a little about it. What it meant. One is, look at chapter 27, verse 35. They're not finished with the mental cruelty. Verse 35, Then they crucified Him and divided His garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They divided My garments among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots. Since the Garden of Eden, 
right-thinking people, and I want to emphasize right-thinking people, a lot of people not thinking rightly anymore, but right-thinking people have understood there is a shame in public nakedness. That there is supposed to be within us a modesty that clothes ourselves when we go out. What do they do to Jesus? They strip Him of His clothes. They shame Him. And then they mock Him even more. Verse 38, Then two robbers were crucified with Him, one on the right and another on the left. And those who... Just by putting Him in between two robbers. That's part of it. You know, birds of a feather flock together. That's the idea of guilt by association. And those who passed by blasphemed Him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priest also, mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others, Himself He cannot save. If He is the King of Israel, let Him now come down from the cross and we will believe Him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. The sinless Son of God. The innocent one, the good one. Just continues to suffer humiliation and mockery. And it says they crucified him. They nailed him to a cross. Elsewhere we'll be told, you remember, it talks about the nails to his hands and his feet. Just try to imagine that after what you've been through, your back laid open with the scourge, then they lay you against this wooden cross, and then they drive nails through your hands, probably right here at the base and they drive a nail through your feet. Archaeologists have uncovered evidence that would suggest they would take the feet and they would bend them at a pretty awkward angle where one nail would go through both feet. Sometimes the cross would have a little bit of a peg that was kind of like a seat, but it wasn't a seat. You know, it, you can imagine how uncomfortable that was. And you nail, and then they drop that cross into place. And the weight of your body would pull down. The weight of your body pulling up upon your hands. You, the, the pain would have been just excruciating. To relieve the pain in your hands, to, you know, somewhat, you'd press with your feet. Then you can imagine what that would do to your feet. With a nail, a spike driven through them. It was a cycle of torture. Jesus is going to be there for six hours. And Pilate will be surprised that it ends so quickly. Crucifixion was designed to be slow, painful, torturous death. On a cross, in time it became difficult to breathe. It became difficult to get that breath, that, to exhale, to get the carbon dioxide out, to get in fresh, fresh oxygen. You had to push up. 
you know, to get that air in, to breathe. In time, the lungs would begin to fill with fluid. The body would dehydrate, fever and chills. And it's said that you would die of one of two things usually. Either heart failure or you would drown in the own fluids of your lungs. It was six hours of torture. It was a horrible death. When Paul said he was obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross, those are not empty words. But I want to ask you now, what does all that mean? What does all of that mean that he went through as he was betrayed, as he was spat upon, as he was stripped and nailed to the cross and suffered that torturous death? What does all of that mean? What it means is what John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. When God sent Jesus into this world, when Jesus was conceived in the womb of Mary, He knew exactly where it would end up. He so loved the world. He loved us enough that He was sending His Son to be a propitiation. I want you to look at Romans 3 with me. We don't use the word propitiation much in everyday speech. In fact, you probably never use it in everyday speech. But a propitiation, that's a word suggesting of, suggestive of turning away the wrath of someone. We, we kind of understand the concept. You've done something, maybe, again, this might be a stretch for some of you husbands, but you, you did something and kind of got on your wife's bad side. So you think, hmm, maybe this evening on the way home I might ought to stop and pick up some flowers. Or maybe I call her and I say, honey, I'm bringing dinner home tonight. Well, why are you doing that? Oh, nothing special, honey. Just won't you know how much I loved you. You know, what we're trying to, we're trying to propitiate. We're trying to get back in the good graces. We were not in God's good graces. We had sinned. How are we going to propitiate that wrath? How are we going to turn it away? Well, look at what he says. Verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God set forth as a propitiation. We did the wrong. God made the step to bring us to Him. You know, I mean, you know, the husband... You did, you messed up. So you realize, I need to do something. Mankind didn't say, well, I need to do something, as though there would have been something we could have done. But he says, God did it. God reached out in the fifth chapter, in verse 8 of Romans, Romans 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, 
we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. I can read about how certain things are an abomination to God. And God looks down on a world that's committing these abominations, these things He hates, and He says, I will give My Son for you. Folks, that's love. That's motivating love. Our Father loved us. And so did Jesus. In John, the 15th chapter, He said to His disciples, there's just no greater love than that a man lay down his life for his friends. And I want you to remember Gethsemane. I didn't go back that far in the reading. But when Jesus went into the garden that night, He said, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. He prayed that night, Oh, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Yes, He was the Son of God, but He was also the Son of Man. He was one of us who got tired. Who got Being the Son of God didn't exempt Him from pain and anguish. Didn't keep him from having feelings. Well, why does he do it? Well, because he loved us. The night before he dies, as he's there with the apostles, and they're eating the Passover, a, a, a memorial of a deliverance from Egypt, he gives them a new memorial. A memorial of an event that's not yet taken place. But when he took that cup, he said, For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. He was going to go out to the cross because he knew it was his blood that was needed for our forgiveness. His soul might be exceedingly sorrowful unto death, but he would do it. Revelation 1.5 speaks of how He washed us. Some of your translations say He loosed us from our sins in His blood. Jesus knew why He was going to the cross. You know, every now and then you read about you know, some situation where somebody almost becomes a hero just because they happen to be in either the right place at the right time or the wrong place at the wrong time, however you want to look at it. They just happen to, they stumble upon a situation and they do something without even almost thinking. Now, Jesus knew full well where He was going, what He was doing, and why He was doing it. And I said this lesson is about motivation. And I want you to think now, now what does this do for us? How does thinking about the innocent, good, Son of God, suffering so many things and shedding His blood for us. What does that do for us? How does it touch us? Does it cause us to love Him in return? 
In 1 John 5 and verse 3, it says, For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. The reality is, the commandments of God are burdensome for a lot of people. There are a lot of people that can't do it. Why? Because the love of God hasn't really gotten a hold of them. They don't see the Bible through the cross. And it's too much for them. Well, God, that's that's just too much. I can't do that. Because they don't really grasp what Jesus did for them. When you see truly the love of God, when it spurs a love in you, then His commandments are not burdensome. Instead of, He wants me to do that, it, it becomes, is that all He's asking? That's all that's, He's asking me to do? Considering what He has done? If you're not a Christian, why? Why would you look at the cross? How can you look at the cross? And not be drawn to Him. I think about the the Ethiopian eunuch. They're riding along and asking, Here's water. What keeps me from being baptized? You know, I'm ready. If you're already a Christian, I want you to look at a passage. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14. For the love of Christ compels us. Some say constrains us. It get a hold of you. Because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. How are you going to live the life of a Christian? How are you going to Devote the time to study and to prayer and to holiness and godliness. How are you going to be strong in the face of adversity when life becomes unfair, when tribulations arise? How are you going to do it? You're going to live for Him who died for you. You're going to see what He did for you first. In chapter 6 and verse 1, We then, as workers together with Him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. He is talking to Christians. This is written to the church of God, which was at Corinth. He says, don't let the grace of God be in vain. For He says, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Take hold of the cross. Let it get a hold of you and change you. Inspire you to more dedicated, faithful attendance. More diligent study. More fervent prayer. More generous giving. More loving service. A more holy, chaste life. Because of the cross. 
It was said of Jesus, he was obedient to the point of death. What about you and me? Oh, we could talk about the fear of hell. We can talk about the promise of heaven. Those are important. But I just want you to see the cross. And I want you to determine you're not going to treat this as insignificant. In Hebrews, the 10th chapter, verse 26, the writer is warning about sinning against God, rejecting Jesus. And I want you to focus in on the thought, he says in verse 29, after saying that those who rejected Moses' law died without mercy. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? What are you going to do with the Son of God? What do you say about the blood of the covenant? What happened to Jesus was a horrible miscarriage of justice. But if all you see is a miscarriage of justice, all you see is a a story that just kind of makes you shudder to think about the horrors of a scourging and a crucifixion, folks, you missed it. This is the story of one who loved us and wanted to deliver us from the wrath to come. Don't treat that blood as something insignificant. It may be that you're a child of God who's turned away from Him. It may be I'm talking here tonight to someone who once was touched by the cross. But somewhere along the way, you just kind of lost it. The world's pull became too great. You began to think, God is asking too much. No, He's not. But there's hope for you. 1 John 1 Verse 7 says, But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. His blood will cleanse you tonight. And I hope you'd allow it. But it could also be there's someone here tonight who's never come to Jesus to be baptized into Christ. Jesus said in Mark 16, 16, He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. That's enough testimony. It should be enough to convince anybody of their need to be baptized. Somebody says, but what about, I I thought it was the cross. It was the blood shed for the remission of our sins. Well, Romans, the sixth chapter, verse three, says, or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection. When we talk to you about the importance 
of being baptized. We're not asking you to participate in some rite of initiation that we've created. That we have decided, well, now this is the way that you become a part of our church. No. Baptism is God's commandment. It is God's link to that greatest show of love that was ever made. You will be baptized into the death of Christ. Three days later, He would come forth, risen from the grave. You will come forth from baptism with newness of life. Your sins will be taken away. I don't know your condition, but you do. How does the cross touch you? Does it move you? If it has moved you this evening to come to the Lord who gave himself for you, we'd be glad to help you if you come as we stand and sing together.